Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 42 for the first quarter of July 2012. The topic I'm going to talk about today is somewhat lighter than the last few months. Is our solar system really part of the Milky Way galaxy? The basic claim is that our solar system, from the sun to the planets to the asteroids and comets, is not native to the Milky Way galaxy. Rather, we're from the Sagittarius Dwarf Galaxy, so-called because we first observed it in the Sagittarius region of the sky. The Sagittarius Dwarf Galaxy is currently being cannibalized by the Milky Way, and much like an adopted child when they turn 18, we're finally discovering that the Milky Way isn't our real mommy. This was a story that really first came out in 2007, and since then it's been brought up and used by various pseudoscientists for their own particular purposes, and it's been picked up by random people as a more element of intrigue rather than any particular desire to commit pseudoscientistry. Lately, I've generally been hearing it more in the context of 2012, such as in this example. I think it's more of a harmonization opportunity to harmonize with higher energies. And and I think it is in light of awakening where actually I talk about some of the latest uh, study by scientists where they actually think that the Mayans and actually our solar system is not really part, was at one time not really part of the Milky Way. And that the end of this calendar is actually part of that old solar system, which is the Sagittarius Dwarf universe, is finally starting to collide into and being absorbed with the Milky Way. And so they think that that might be what the threshold event of the Mayan calendar is about, is is the end of the time of that independent galaxy and now our entrance in being part of a larger galaxy. The basis of this entire thing can be traced back, at least as far as I can tell, to a 2003 paper in the Astrophysical Journal, one of the main astrophysics journals in the world. The paper is by Majewski et al., and it's called A Two-Micron All-Sky Survey View of the Sagittarius Dwarf Galaxy. 1. Morphology of the Sagittarius Core and Tidal Arms. Note, the paper is from 2003. The press release about this paper is from 2003. The story was first corrupted in 2007. Moving on, the paper did have a follow-up in 2004. Both I'll link to in the show notes for the episode because they're available online for free. The paper, actually the papers, are pretty, pretty darn dense, and they're both pretty long. In an attempt to summarize, there are two basic ideas here that are relevant to this discussion. First, we know that the Milky Way, our galaxy, is fairly massive, and that there are several satellite galaxies around it. The large and small Magellanic clouds are probably the best known, especially in the southern hemisphere, where they're visible from, from Earth, but there are several other, much fainter galaxies that are currently in orbit or are in the process of being ripped to shreds. Many of them, many of them, as I said, are being eaten by our galaxy because of our galaxy's larger gravity. If you could be on the outside of our galaxy and observe things over a very long period of time, you'd see the smaller galaxy orbiting ours and get shredded and eaten. And during that process, it would be spread out into very long streams of stars due to tidal forces. 
We've known about the Sagittarius Dwarf Galaxy since about 1994, when it was first discovered. The second basic idea to this whole story is that an all-sky survey at infrared wavelengths was completed around a decade ago, or shortly before this paper was written. That's the 2-micron all-sky survey, also known as 2MASS for short. The Sagittarius Dwarf Galaxy has a lot of old, red stars in it. Putting these two parts together, the scientists in this paper, and the follow-up, used the infrared all-sky survey to do the most detailed map of these old red stars, and so they were able to produce the most detailed map of the Sagittarius Dwarf Galaxy to date, in 2003. Among other things, they found that one of the streamers of stars from that galaxy that's being ripped to shreds happens to pass through, almost through, a region of our galaxy that we are currently occupying. In 2003, the University of Virginia, where most of the authors on this paper were employed at the time, put out a press release that simplified all of the results that I'll link to in the show notes. The press release starts with a typical news media verbiage to get you interested, with the title being, New Map of the Milky Way Shows Our Galaxy to Be a Cannibal. The subtitle is, Study Shows the Milky Way is Out to Lunch. The article starts with, Chicken Little was right. The sky is falling. Thousands of stars stripped from the nearby Sagittarius Dwarf Galaxy are streaming through our vicinity of the Milky Way Galaxy, according to a new view of the local universe constructed by a team of astronomers from the University of Virginia and the University of Massachusetts. If you read farther down into the press release, there's a quote from the lead author. For a few percent of its 240 million year orbit around the Milky Way galaxy, does our solar system pass through the path of Sagittarius debris, Majewski said. Remarkably, stars from Sagittarius are now raining down onto our present position in the Milky Way. Stars from an alien galaxy are relatively near us. We have to rethink our assumptions about the Milky Way galaxy to account for this contamination. Note, nowhere in this did he say that our solar system is part of the Sagittarius Dwarf Galaxy. Fast forward four years, and a website called CureZone, whose current tagline is Educating Instead of Medicating, came up with a page that claims that our solar system is not native to the Milky Way, but rather it's from the Sagittarius Dwarf Galaxy. The website looks as though it was designed in the early 1990s, so it's fairly difficult to read and figure out much of anything else that they're trying to say. Fortunately, or unfortunately, depending upon your point of view, another website called The View Zone latched onto it and did an article that's actually readable. I should note that View Zone's current top stories include Illuminati and Rap Music, Vampires and the Bones of St. John the Baptist, and galactic superwave and expanding earth theory. Not that I'm intending to poison the well or use an ad hominem, but I figured I would give you some context of the types of other articles that these kinds of websites report. Anywho, Dan Eden of this particular illustrious site started out his story with this. Imagine the shock of growing up in a loving family with people you call mum and dad, and then, suddenly, learning that you were actually adopted. This same sense of shock came as scientists announced that the sun, the moon, 
our planet and its siblings were not born into the familiar band of stars known as the Milky Way galaxy, but we actually belong to a strange formation with the unfamiliar name of the Sagittarius Dwarf Galaxy. As Phil Plate of the Bad Astronomy blog, website, Twitter feed, all these other things, summarized at the time, Eden's article takes the following steps. First, the Milky Way is currently eating a smaller galaxy, one that's called the Sagittarius Dwarf Galaxy. Two, the Milky Way's gravity has spread out the dwarf galaxy into long streamers of stars due to its interactions with our galaxy over millions, actually billions of years. Three, this stream of stars, this particular one, is at an angle to the plane of the Milky Way, and it intersects the Milky Way galaxy. Four, the sun is near one of those places that this particular streamer intersects, and the odds of this happening are really low. Five, therefore the sun originally came from the dwarf galaxy, not the Milky Way. To say that the step between four and five is an incredible leap is putting it mildly. So we look to evidence, other evidence. Is there any? One of the alleged lines of evidence is that the Milky Way is at an angle in our night sky. One of the most interesting astrophysical questions out there is if you look up at the night sky, you know, not in any of these big cities, but where you can still see the, the night sky, the, the Milky Way is at an angle. Now, this is rather mysterious because it shouldn't be. We should be in the lens of the Milky Way, and we should be parallel. Gravity should should have made our solar system uh, parallel to the center of the galaxy, like all of the other stars are. But we're not. We're at an angle. Could that be because we are actually entering the Milky Way? And if that's the case, we may, may be moving into a more uh, a, an area of denser and more energetic plasma as we penetrate the lens of the Milky Way. I'll get to Whitley Strieber's whole 2012 plasma dense bad stuff thing happening in a bit. But regarding the angle, I don't know what astrophysicist he thinks he's been talking to. But no astrophysicist, possibly it was Richard Hoagland, but no astrophysicist who's a legitimate astrophysicist is intrigued with the question of why the Milky Way appears to be tilted in our night sky. It's random. Our solar system may seem like it's pretty big to us, but as a whole, compared with the rest of the galaxy, it's like saying that a small, teeny, tiny current of water isn't flowing in the exact same direction as the rest of a lake. Therefore, that little stream of water isn't part of the lake. We are less than 0.005% of the size of our galaxy in length, and we're less than 0.00005% of the volume of the Milky Way galaxy. The plane of rotation of our solar system is not expected to be aligned with the plane of the galaxy. And no, all of the other stars in the galaxy are not aligned with their rotation axis perpendicular to the plane of our galaxy. Again, I don't know what astrophysicist he's been talking with, but he needs to get some new ones. Now, if we want to talk about ways to show that we are native to the Milky Way galaxy, there are three lines of evidence. 
One of the first may sound familiar, and that's from episode 15 on the non-galactic alignment of December of this year. Astrometry. Astrometry is the measurement, metry, of star positions, astro, and the velocities, and it's an incredibly delicate and high-precision field. As I've said before, all of the astrometrical evidence and observations show that our solar system's main motion is with the motion of the rest of the stars in our vicinity around the Milky Way galaxy, not through it. When you subtract out that main motion, we are traveling upwards out of the plane of the galaxy a bit, but we'll slow down in a few million years, reverse direction, and come back through. We oscillate up and down. That's just normal motion through the galaxy. I'll note that this direction of up that we're currently traveling happens to be the opposite direction of the Sagittarius Dwarf Galaxy star streamers that are currently moving through our galaxy in its present location. So, fairly good evidence that we are not part of the Sagittarius Dwarf. A weaker line of evidence, at least in my opinion, is probability. People who believe that we are not part of the Milky Way point to the coincidence that the solar system happens to be at one of the intersections of the Sagittarius Dwarf Galaxy with the Milky Way at the current moment. Yes, it's a coincidence. They say that it's too much to be one of coincidence. Therefore, we are from the Sagittarius Dwarf Galaxy. What they don't look at it is from the opposite point of view, and it's a much, much smaller probability that we'd be where the Milky Way intersects the Sagittarius Dwarf Galaxy. The Milky Way is large. Yes, it does take 240 million years for us to orbit at once. It's roughly 100,000 light years from side to side. But because the Sagittarius Dwarf has been spread out so much, its path is much larger than the circumference of our galaxy. It would take over a billion years to complete one orbit in the current configuration of the Sagittarius Dwarf, and the amount of time we'd spend plunging through the disk of the Milky Way would be maybe on the order of a million years, and the time spent just in the thick disk, where we are now, is even less. So if you want to just argue probability-wise, based on the intersection point, then it's more likely we're from the Milky Way than the Sagittarius Dwarf because it's less likely that we'd be at the point of the Milky Way galaxy intersecting the Sagittarius Dwarf than vice versa. A third way, besides location, motion, probability, and other stuff, of telling if one star belongs to a certain population is to look at its betalicity, its composition. Mainly we measure the ratio of iron in a star to hydrogen, uh, for short, if you ever hear an astronomer say Fe on H, that's iron relative to hydrogen. The Sun has a lot of iron, relatively speaking. Stars in the Milky Way, on average, have less iron, but our Sun would be not abnormal, and it still fits reasonably well with other stars in our vicinity, in terms of its metallicity. The Sagittarius dwarf stars, on the other hand, are much, much lower in iron than our Sun indicating, again, that we're more likely to be a member of a Milky Way population of stars than the Sagittarius Dwarf population. Now, one last thing before I very briefly address the New Agey claims related to this. After all of this stuff came out, the scientists who wrote the original journal article decided to amend their press release. 
at the top that I'll link to in the show notes, it now states in big, red, bold capital letters, If you are looking at this webpage because you have read fallacious news reports about the sun being from the Sagittarius Dwarf Galaxy, 1. Do not believe everything you read on the web. 2. If you are a journalist, please follow traditional journalistic standards and do proper source and fact-checking. If other supposedly reliable news agencies had subscribed to these basic principles, you probably would not be wasting time right now chasing down this illegitimate news story. End parenthesis. 3. The website, and then he links to Phil Plate's page, does a reasonable job of addressing the misinformation being circulated. 4. This webpage contains the original press release text from 2003, exclamation point, that has been corrupted slash misinterpreted to, quote, support, unquote, the incorrect conclusion that the sun did not originate in the Milky Way galaxy. Read carefully, and you will see that this press release only details the characteristics of the Sagittarius galaxy and nothing more. All astrophysical evidence points confidently and indisputably to the fact that the sun is now, and has always been, a part of the Milky Way. So yeah, you'd think at this point that people would know that this is not the case, that the Sun is part of the Milky Way and not part of the Sagittarius Dwarf Galaxy. But, as most of us know by now, it is much, much easier to simply make a claim and put it out there than it is to stop that claim once it's in even the unpopular press. That coast-to-coast clip that I played at the beginning of the episode is from February 2012, The one that I played maybe five minutes ago is from November of 2009. Again, several years after this correction, or not even correction, but this clarification had been made. So now, as promised, a little bit about the New Age stuff that's come out of this. Almost everything that I've heard or read or seen tries to tie this idea into 2012, either doom and gloom or joined hope and consciousness and love. As you heard in the clip with Whitley Strieber, he was the second one, he's trying to tie it to a denser plasma in the core or the center disk of the galaxy. Earlier in that interview, he was implicating this for more asteroid hits and global warming across the solar system, but that's a future episode. The View Zone article tries to tie this into global warming, dark spots on Pluto, bigger magnetic fields on Jupiter pole shifts on Uranus and Neptune, and other sorts of things. And it notes that readers may be interested to read about Doomsday, the Mayan prophecy. The ViewZone article concludes with, In our movement through space, our Earth has now begun fully to respond to the more powerful galactic energies and electro-gravitational bias of the massive Milky Way. We have reached the higher energy equatorial disk region of the massive spiral arm. We have been adopted by a new system, a stronger and more powerful system, and we can expect changes on almost every level of energy. Whatever these changes are, they are all part of the natural birth, death, rebirth, and transformation of the cosmos. As our knowledge of the universe grows, We cannot but understand how much we do not understand such is life. But no, 
There is no evidence we're from the Sagittarius Dwarf Galaxy. There is evidence we're from the Milky Way. There's no evidence of any of the Doom and Gloom of 2012 stuff. And I will have more episodes on 2012 stuff coming up, including one later this month. And the solar system-wide global warming stuff will be subject to a future podcast episode. I didn't see anything in the news this week related to previous episodes, but I should actually point out that if any of you happen to, that you'd like me to address, please feel free to send it in and I can use it in the new news segment in a future episode. So this episode's question for Q&A is another crater question. This one comes from Chu, who asks, I've seen power laws for meteor magnitude versus frequency and asteroid diameter versus impact interval, but what's the law for dating a surface from craters? If one surface has 50 one-kilometer craters and another has 100 one-kilometer craters, how much older is the latter surface? How does throwing in an eight-kilometer crater adjust the age? The answer to Chu's question is, unfortunately, it's complicated. If the impact flux, that is, the number of impactors hitting per unit time, were the same throughout the solar system's history, then the answer would be that it's purely linear. If surface A and surface B are the same in area, and A has 51-kilometer craters, B has 101-kilometer craters, then B would simply be twice as old because it has twice as many craters. Putting in an 8-kilometer diameter crater will probably not really alter the age that much because it's really only one crater. We also have a distribution of craters across all sizes, so you can't really get a surface that just has 50 or 101 kilometer diameter craters. It just wouldn't happen. So in practical terms, you would likely do something that I talked about in the last episode with the n densities, where you use the sum of all craters larger than one kilometer to get an age estimate. So in Chu's example, we go back to surface A having 50 greater than one kilometer craters, and surface B having 101 greater than 50 or greater than one kilometer craters. And so again, surface B is going to be almost twice as old as surface A, just slightly older. Now, in actual solar system history, the rate of impacts has not been constant. We know that soon after solar system formation, it was much higher than it is now. This is where we have to go back to the lunar samples to rely on correlating number of craters on a surface with the age. Doing this, we get a function that we use to say that if a surface has this many craters, then it's this old. If the surface is fairly young, then the linear model still works. So two times as many craters means it's two times as old. But since early on there were more impacts than if a surface has, say, two times as many craters as a 4.0 billion year old surface, then it's not going to be 8 billion years old. It might be more like 4.1 or 4.2. This is why I said it's complicated. But it's also a little bit more complicated. We know, for example, that asteroids have broken up into families, and this likely sent an extra little bunch of impactors our way. We don't know how to account for these now, and so they aren't in that main function that we use that we get from calibrating the lunar samples. We also think there may have been a spike in the impact rate 
roughly around 4 billion years ago called the Late Heavy Bombardment. That's also not factored into the standard function that we use, although some people have alternative models that do incorporate it. Again, it's complicated, but I do feel the need to mention in this kind of podcast that even in the worst-case scenario, the worst-case, most dramatic corrections, they're not going to change the fundamental ideas that I talked about with crater-age dating in the past two episodes. If a surface has more craters, it's older. So that wraps up this Q&A segment. If you'd like to submit a question for consideration, please use any of the feedback methods available. Although the easiest is, again, probably just to send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. In an effort to get these episodes out on time again, especially with this month of travel coming up, I'm going to skip the feedback section and go on to the puzzler, where each episode, or each odd episode, I attempt to ask a critical thinking question based loosely upon the material discussed in the main segment. The scenario last time was this. If a one-kilometer diameter asteroid hits the moon and a one-kilometer diameter comet hits the moon, is the crater created by the asteroid likely to be larger, the same size, or smaller than the one created by the comet? Why or why not? This puzzler elicited the most feedback from people, with over a dozen sending in responses. Everyone had at least one part of this correct, and there were different parts that each person had. It's putting the two parts together that just a few people were able to do. So congratulations goes to Richard for being the first, but also to Warwick for submitting a full solution. So as I said, there are really two parts to this. First is the fact that comets are less dense than asteroids. The average density of a comet is very, very roughly around 1 to 2 grams per cubic centimeter. The average density of an asteroid is very very roughly 3 to 5 grams per cubic centimeter, which we'll call very roughly twice that of a comet. Again, I'm I'm trying to use round numbers to get the concept across. This means that the mass of the impactors that will have the same diameter would be different by about a factor of 8, since you have to cube 2 in order to get the volume. So, in other words, since the density of the asteroid is roughly twice as much as the density of the comet, you have to cube that factor of 2 in order to get the difference in mass. The second part is that comets have a much higher velocity than asteroids when they are in the inner solar system, and this velocity is what they would hit the moon, planet, or any other object with. It's their orbital velocity. It's just they're on a pretty darn elliptical orbit. There is a velocity distribution just like there is a velocity distribution of asteroid impactors, but the average velocity of a comet in the inner solar system is somewhere around 60 to 70 kilometers per second. The average velocity of an asteroid from the main belt when it gets to Earth is somewhere around 25 kilometers per second. So that's about one-third of the comet. The size of the crater formed, all other things being equal, is directly related to the energy of the impactor. Kinetic energy is one-half mv squared, where m is the mass, velocity is v. And so the relative energy of both impactors is proportional to their masses times the velocity squared. Their masses differ by roughly a factor of eight. 
their velocities differ by roughly a factor of one-third. When you square one-third, that's roughly one-ninth. Since these are all approximations, eight times one-ninth is basically one. And so the solution is that the increased mass of the asteroid is compensated for the increased velocity of the comet. And so both will produce roughly the same sized crater. I guess we are doing a bit of feedback on this episode because in episode 40, I asked for feedback on the puzzler. Is it worth doing? Why don't you participate? Etc. 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 I got more feedback on this question than I have on any other that I've ever asked, and I thank everybody for writing in, even if I didn't have time to respond to you personally. Only one or two people said they didn't like the puzzler. Most said the reason that they don't participate, or they hadn't before, and then they wrote in perhaps a guilt-tripped answer, is that they listen in places where they don't have access to a computer or the internet, or they listen too late, or that they like it, but they don't think by the time they have an answer that it's going to be the first one, and so they don't write it in. There are other answers too, but those were sort of the main ones and the main theme. A few said that they didn't participate because it's too hard. To just quickly address the last point on it being too hard, this is always a delicate balance, and I do realize I've missed the mark sometimes. In my defense, I'll say that in the 20-some-odd puzzlers I've done, I only think about twice has no one gotten the solution. And it's really, really hard to come up with something that isn't just a Google search away. I mean, this is something that I think Evan Bernstein had an issue with when he was doing the puzzlers or whatever they called it on SGU a few years ago. So in the end, the conclusion from all of this is that most also said that they like it, but that it wouldn't be sorely missed if it went away. It wouldn't be a reason to stop listening to the podcast. So I think what I'm going to do is relegate the puzzler to a when-I-have-a-good-one schedule, somewhat similar to the new news segment. The solution to any puzzler that I do end up putting out will be discussed on the episode following the one that it was asked on, so no more of this every-other-episode rotation. With that said, I couldn't think of a good puzzler for this particular topic of the solar system not belonging to our galaxy, and so that's it for this segment. There are just two announcements for this episode. First, I was interviewed by Nancy Atkinson, who writes for Universe Today, though the interview was a roughly 15-minute podcast about craters on the moon versus Mars. I discussed some of my current research during that interview. I've linked up to it in the show notes, and it was, I should note, put out on 365 Days of Astronomy, as well as the NASA Lunar Science Institute podcasts. The second announcement is that the date for the CosmoQuest meetup at TAM has changed from Sunday to Saturday. I'm still planning a separate time just for folks who are interested in me, myself and I, with full realization of how self-centered that sounds. I'll do it via email, as in figuring out a time, to the people who have mentioned interest, and I'll post on the podcast feedback page and Twitter stream when that meetup time is going to be. I'll also probably announce it during the next uh, July 8th episode. Also, again, for those of you who haven't figured it out by now, or latched on, or whatever, my Twitter handle for this podcast is pseudoastro, P-S-E-U-D-O-A-S-T-R-O.
And with this music, I the wrap up this topic for the 42nd edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it, and hopefully, hopefully, I really hope, learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.srdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website. Send an email to podcast.srdesign.net, or leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, or Twitter, or Facebook, or whatever. I read every email, or message, or whatever, and I do appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. If you like this podcast, please write a review and rate it on iTunes. Also tell your friends and family, and at least two random internet people who you've never met before.